Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I'm Laura McClaus-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. With these interviews, I'm seeking to learn from cultural creatives about how following their passions has molded their lives and careers, what choices they've made, where it's led them, and how they created the lives of their dreams. I try to create a space where they feel that they can openly discuss the ups, downs, and zigzags of life, as well as the total magic and inspiration that comes from doing what you love to do. Recently, I sat down with fashion designer Anna Sui. Though it was our first time meeting in person, we had communicated at length a few years ago when I was curating an exhibition on the fashion designer Thea Porter. Over the decades, Anna has gathered much inspiration from Thea's designs, so I interviewed her and also borrowed two of Anna's dresses to include in the final section of the retrospective, which spoke to Thea Porter's continuing influence on contemporary designers. As a result of Anna's kind loan, the same institution, the Fashion and Textile Museum in London, put on the first retrospective of Anna Sui's work last year. Though Anna exploded into the fashion consciousness in 1991 with her supermodel heavy first runway show, she was no overnight success. Born in Detroit in 1952, from a young age, Sui became obsessed with fashion, music, and New York. Tying in with my earlier podcast with Vicky Teal, which is well worth a search in the archives to listen to, as a teenager, Sui read a Life magazine article about how Teal and Mia Fonsegris had studied fashion design at Parsons before moving to Paris to take the fashion world by storm. With this article as her guide, Sui focused her high school career solely on going to Parsons. As she relays in this interview, it wasn't quite what she thought it would be, and she left after two years to work as an assistant designer at a junior sportswear label. Over the next eight years, she held many similar jobs, before starting her own company with $300 quite by chance in 1980. Working from her apartment, Sui was forced to learn every aspect of running a business in the process of doing, something that held her in good stead when she became a fashion star in the early 1990s, with many opportunities available to her. In 1992, Sui opened her first store and won the CFDA Perry Ellis Award for New Talent. More stores, diffusion lines, perfume, and makeup followed. We spoke extensively about the business deals and collaborations she made over the years, which have allowed her to expand her empire and to maintain control privately of her company, which was valued in 2006 at over $400 million. So few fashion brands are still owned by their founding designers. We've entered a world where fashion is run by conglomerates and bankers, a subject Anna and I discuss at length. We also discussed the sacrifices Anna has had to make in order to build a successful world. In any life, when you make a decision and say yes to something, you then have to say no to something else. We heard about that in the last episode, with Jerry Schatzberg sacrificing good relationships with his children for his career, and we'll hear about it again today. Devoting 100% of her energies to building her business meant that Anna chose not to pursue marriage and motherhood. Her designs are her children, beautiful, affordable clothes that reflect her multi-layered passions for history, pop culture, and music. Please head to our website to see images from throughout her career, clips from several runway shows, as well as a short article. Enjoy! Thank you so much for sitting down with me sure, today. Sure, of course. It's great to finally meet you. Yeah. So whenever I you know, have read things about you, they talk about how almost immediately you knew you wanted to be a fashion designer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, since I was four. I came to New York with my parents. I was the flower girl at my aunt and uncle's mm-hmm. wedding, and on the way home I said when I grow up I'm going to move to New York and be a fashion designer and probably at that point I had no idea what that meant but it was probably something I saw on television or where I thought it was a very glamorous life that I'd be carrying sketchbooks and wearing beautiful clothes and going out to lunch so I just kind of always had that in the back of my mind and throughout uh, especially my like junior high and high school years that was my focus. Like I wanted to go to Parsons. I learned about Parsons from my babysitter had a Seventeen magazine, and I remember seeing the ad for Parsons in the back, 
and I didn't quite know what it was, but Life Magazine had an article about Mia Fonsegraves and Vicky Teal, and that they graduated from Parsons, went to Paris, and Elizabeth Taylor opened a boutique. So as a kid, you think, oh, that's all I have to do is go to Parsons. So I looked at the pictures. They did the costumes for What's New Pussycat. It was just like, it looked like such a glamorous life. Years later, I went back because I, I saved the magazine. I read the text, and it was like, oh, Mia Fonsegraves, Lisa Fonsegraves' daughter, stepfather Irving Penn. There was like a little bit more of a connection <laughs> yeah. there. Um, but, you know, actually, I met Vicki Teal, and... Um, she Actually, she's the last person I interviewed. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's fascinating, and her book was so charming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, like, she was lifelong friends with Elizabeth Taylor. And, like, you know, what a charmed life she had from meeting her. So, somewhere I didn't get it wrong, but, it you know, there was, like, this magic. So, it's just kind of... So, that's that's why my life motto is live your dream, because that goes beyond anything practical, reasonable, in the books, you know, it's just like, it's, there's, it, when there's a dream, it can take you farther. But then once you got to Parsons, you were only there for what, two years? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and I got hired out of school. I heard, overheard two seniors talking about a job opportunity, and it was a, a designer called Erica Elias, and she did a collection called Charlie's Girls. and. One of my favorite magazines was Rags Magazine, mm -hmm. and there had been a big article on her that, that, that issue, and I was thinking, like, oh, Erica Elias, I have to go up and meet her. So I just put together my portfolio, my student stuff, and she hired me on the spot. And yeah, I mean, it was the best experience I ever had because everyone knew she was a very difficult boss, but knew that I would have like incredible training from her. And she gave me my own design room. I had two sewers and a pattern maker. And there were five divisions of the company, so I could design in any of those divisions. <clears throat> they had children's with, where they had um, a license with Dr. Seuss. There were the swimwear, because they, they were uh, owned by Hang Ten, mm -hmm. and the sportswear, dresses. Uh, and Erica loved fashion, so she would go to Europe and come back with all these great clothes for inspiration. So. It was just like an ideal first job. Did you have any regrets about leaving school or just, because it sort of sounds like that was just school no, in itself. No, because at that point, Parsons was still, you know, it was Ann Kagey and she was kind of stuck in Norman Norell, mm -hmm. 7th Avenue world. And I saw this whole other world going on with Pret-a-Porter in Paris, Kenzo, Sonia Riquel. Even the Reeve Gauche collection, you know, there, there was something, another spirit going on, but they didn't get it. And also, you know, like the boutiques like Norma Kamali and Betsy Johnson, and, you know, yeah. uh, I lived on the block where Betsy Bunky and Nini mm -hmm. was and Norma Kamali. And like, that wasn't what we were learning at school. You know, we were learning how to take gingham and paste sequence on the gingham to make, you know, a gown, you know, and so it was just like, I didn't really get what they were teaching me anymore. So it was time to like really get life experience mm -hmm. and that's that's what happened. So that was around what, like 1970? Like uh, 72, two. 73, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you started your own company in 1981. 81, yeah. Mm -hmm. That was a fluke too. You know, I was very involved in the whole CBGB's, Max's mm -hmm. punk scene and I had two friends that were doing incredible punk style jewelry and selling to boutiques cross country and they, they, they even went to London and 
got to be good friends with Vivian Westwood. And so they were kind of like my idols. And they would do the boutique show uh, two, two times a year. And I, I said to them, oh, I wish I could do the boutique show. And they said, well, why don't you make some clothes? So I did a small collection of five pieces and I shared the booth with them. And I ended up getting orders from, at the time, Macy's and Bloomingdale's were the fashion forward stores. And so both of them ordered for me, and I consequently had a New York Times ad and Christmas windows. My boss, where I was working at that point, not my boss, but the owner of the company, came to me and said, I have to talk to you. How come you have your own New York Times ad and you're on my payroll? And I said, I don't know, it just happened. And he said, well, it's got to stop. And I said, it can't stop. And I got fired. So that's how I started my own business. So little by little, I kind of built that business because I shipped those orders. And then the next season, I did another collection, did uh, like another trade show, and just started getting more and more customers. But meanwhile, to support myself, I did styling with my best mm -hmm. friend, Stephen Mizell. So we worked with Franca Sazani mm -hmm. for Lay Magazine for more than a year. I did every month, I did a story for her. Comparing styling with other people's clothes to making your own clothes, how did it, did you find that they worked seamlessly together or was it difficult? Because you even continued styling with him into the early 90s at least. Uh, off and on, yeah. No, I mean, because I love fashion. You know, I follow it religiously. Mm -hmm. I, like, the most exciting thing are the new collections. I love seeing what other, everyone else is doing. I love picking my, you know, like my dream wardrobe from what I'm seeing on the runways. So it was a dream to like, be handling those mm -hmm. clothes and being able to play with them and kind of put them together so and of course we broke all the rules you know like for the sports issue we had them on motorcycles and it was all this ski wear but it was all layered with all these like kind of hippie vests and hats and fur boots and you know it was just we just did what we wanted to do and Frank always let us so it was kind of a dream to work with Steven every month. And also, I mean, I guess it was good practice for when you eventually got to have your own shows and yeah. your own stores, and you could create, you'd already been creating these worlds mm -hmm. for so long. Yeah. Those early years of your company, you were doing it out of your own home, right? Yes. Um, so when we did the boutique show, I didn't have an assistant. Mm -hmm. I, I had um, made most of the patterns myself or had, like, pattern makers that I worked with help me and then sewers that I worked with help me. And once... We'd started the next season. I thought oh, I needed an assistant, and li little by little, there was you know one, and then eventually five, and to the point where I, I lived in like a loft-like apartment, so the room was big enough to house the racks, the boxes, cutting. We did all the hand uh, hand cutting ourselves, and then we would take it over to the contractors. Um, but eventually it just took over and one day I like walked out into the into the bigger room and I thought this this has to change I can't stand this anymore so we got an office mm -hmm. um, actually right across the street from here it was kind of half a floor and there's uh, four employees that are here today that started with me back then Amazing. yeah mm -hmm. coming from having worked for other people and then starting your own business did you have any understanding of how to run a business like no not at all not at all. I didn't even know how to balance my checkbook at that point. You know, it's just kind of, but you learn very quickly. And, you know, there would be times when I wouldn't even have a subway token. I'd have to, like, walk up to the garment center. It was just like, the, you know, the, that doing those styling jobs helped mm -hmm. support me for, the, that, for those um, year and a half. But I also ended up doing a lot of freelance, too. 
So I worked in India. I did some freelance. Actually, I went to Italy to do freelance work. And that's when Franca saw me. And she said, come do some jobs for me. Like, so we went to Paris and I did some jobs for her in Paris. And then, you know, she wanted me to uh, work at, it was uh, Glamour mm-hmm. at that point. And <clears throat> I didn't want to stop designing, so I didn't end up doing it. But then from time to time, Stephen would call me to do mm-hmm. um, styling for his jobs. What I'm sort of leading towards mm-hmm. is like how you shifted from, I guess, a very slow sort of shift from being in your, working in your home, to then sort of 10 years later having, mm-hmm. it seems like you exploded out onto the scene. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that really the key to those 10 years was this, the fact that I built a solid foundation, mm-hmm. that by the time I did do my first show, um, I was selling Neiman Marcus, Saks, Bloomingdale's, uh, Macy's, Bergdorf, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sold every yeah. major department store, plus most of the interesting boutiques. So I had like a real solid customer base. So that wasn't my worry mm-hmm. at that point. It was the bigger challenge was how do I compete on an international mm-hmm. level? You know, that was kind of the first season when international press was focusing on New York designers. Everyone was talking about the energy of New York and all the supermodels were here. And <clears throat> I had been friends with them for a few years because of Steven. Like they would hang out at my apartment and we'd all go to dinner. So I knew them socially, but I had never really worked with them unless I had done a styling job with Steven. But they all really helped me pull it, pull it together, that first show. And Paul Cavaco, mm-hmm. and you know he's the head of, uh, he was the KCD, mm-hmm. he was the C in KCD. So Stephen and Paul you know, sat down with me and said, you know, you have to do your a show. And it was just like, I was terrified. And I thought, like, how, how am I going to compete against, like, Versace, Chanel? You know, like, these are, like, you know, zillion-dollar businesses with, you know, teams of people. But they all, re- like, pretty much helped me to get it together. And then it then just kind of started escalating. I think, you know, it was, it was the synergy of, like, the international press coming to New York mm-hmm. at that point. All of the uh, world stores coming to New York at that point, looking for this kind of new energy and fashion. And that from that allowed you to have, I guess, so many new opportunities came. Like yeah. Since then you've done like so many collaborations <clears throat> and... Yeah, but also during those early years, again, from my connection with Franca, mm-hmm. I ordered my first, I mean, I opened my first store in LA, and the day of the opening, I got a phone call from Franca. She said, I have a job for you. And I was like, what? And she's like, no, no, really, like, you should take this job. So I ended up doing freelance for seven years at Iceberg, and I did three collections for them. So I had Cento Percento, which is what they originally hired me for, which was their kind of junior line mm-hmm. of Iceberg. And then I did Anna Sui, um, and then Anna Sui Jeans. And um, yeah, so that was like, again, another support system. Plus, it really opened up my mind to like global business and understanding that you know, like the Italian textile market and craftsmanship that was available in Italy, their sweaters, everything was just so much more advanced than what we were able to find in New York. So, I, you know, I think that was another kind of thing that helped me just kind of get right on board with when the world went global. Because <clears throat> here I am working in a country that I don't really speak the language. And then the same thing happened with Japan, where 
suddenly all these Japanese buyers were coming to New York and wanting to buy the collection, uh, back the collection, uh, get me to come to Japan and work, you know, like all, like there was just so many different offers. But I thought the best offer was Isatan because they had stores. And that was probably maybe my smartest business decision I ever made because he, the man that came to me was the head of Isatan at the time. And along with signing a distribution deal with me, he set up 12 different licenses, one of which is the cosmetics license. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's been just kind of the best business thing that ever happened because, you know, to this day I still have most of those licenses. And the fragrance license came, came to me at the same time, um, which was German originally because mm -hmm. it was Vela, and then got bought by P&G, and now I'm with Interparfum. But some of the team are, are original from mm -hmm. the Vela team. And how much control have you ha do you have over those licenses? It seems <clears> like at least with the packaging and everything, they seem very... Yeah, I have final approval on everything. Mm -hmm. So that's the best control you can mm -hmm. have because it, you have to like it. I think that, again, that was such an inc incredible opportunity. But, you know, when I met with the cosmetic people, they said, we don't want to make a beauty line. We want to make an accessory line. And, like, I loved that concept that they wanted it to be something that you just had to have, and which meant that the packaging, the, um, the, the boxes, and the, the containers all had to be irresistible. And I think that they've stuck with that all these years, mm. and that's been the success. Mm, they, they really do stand out compared to anything else on the market. Mm, thank you. Gorgeous. Thank you. Um, you know, and I, I'm a Biba fan, so I can uh -huh. sort of see yeah. where the lineage kind oh, of comes yeah. from. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I tell Barbara that all the time, mm -hmm. that if it wasn't for her, yeah, because I mean, that was like such an impression. Um, every, every summer we came to New York when I was a kid, because um, we had relatives here, and I remember going to Biba at BG and it was just like oh, this is heaven and and buying my first cosmetics there like a teal eyeshadow and a, like a deep um, plum lipstick and and just the packaging and the presentation was just so incredible I can definitely see <laughs> oh yeah how you're the new continuation of it as the business grew did it ever feel like it was getting how was it to build I guess to balance it with your personal life and everything? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, you make sacrifices and decisions on what's more important to you. And, you know, I think at one point my father said, it's a good thing you're not married, because he knew how much I work I put into doing a collection, how much time I spent at the office. And, you know, of course, like, I wished I would have had kids and family, but I have nine nieces and nephews, so I have a very close relationship with all of them. We go on family trips together, and three of them now live in New York, so we usually have dinner like once or twice a month, or breakfast, like we have like a ritual, like we'll send out an email and see who's around and get together. So I think it's allowed me to really do what I think I was put here for. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, so a fortune teller once told me that, like, this time around you can do everything you want. You have no restraints as far as social, family, or personal. Obviously so much of your inspirations are sort of 60s, 70s and also music and mm -hmm. how do you approach putting together a collection? Do you particularly choose one of those things to really focus on or are you just sort of letting it all sort of come? Usually it's something I'm obsessing about. So the spring collection, <clears throat> I had seen some great exhibitions 
the counter couture mm -hmm. exhibit and then the summer of love in San Francisco and I had never done a total hippie collection and I thought well why not so I just went for it and um, it was it was kind of like so great to kind of immerse yourself in this experience and then there were some great videos that were at the counter couture of um, communes and like the processions that they would have at dawn so that was like kind of the um, staging that we did for the, the opening of the show so that was a very definite um, me trying to capture that energy and that um, kind of life is going to be better spirit of the 60s mm -hmm. This, the new collection that I just did, I kind of had a longing for stepping back and not including anything rock and roll or bohemian. So I really thought about when I was growing up in Detroit and looking at fashion magazines like Mademoiselle and Seventeen and really like loving like American sportswear, designers like Chester Weinberg, Stan Herman, Donald Brooks. Bill Blass and they were doing kind of a new kind of younger look of American mm -hmm. fashion so you can see that reflected in all these clothes that I just did and I really looked at all my old magazines up on my inspiration board that's what's on the boards are my favorite illustrators from that time and then Jeffrey Banks did the Norman Norell mm -hmm. exhibition but I didn't get a chance to go to the exhibition but he did a talk at Parsons about his book and it was right across the street from where I live, so I left work early to, to go listen to him talk. And I loved the video that he was showing in the background where it was the 1968 spring collection and the models were walking in the showroom. And I thought, oh, why can't we do that? Like, make it more intimate. So that's what I was trying to capture with Gigi and Bella in the opening mm -hmm. of my show. So <clears throat> there's things that happen in the course of working on a collection that kind of get injected in the collection, if it makes sense or I save it for like another time, but I think a lot of what I do is what I'm inspired by, what I'm obsessing about, and then I try to put it into the show or the presentation, kind of to get everybody else excited. You know, it's, it's, it's and I think it kind of did. I think it kind of thought, you know, people started thinking like, yeah, why do these girls have to just do the zombie stomp, like down the runway? It's so monotonous, so boring, like we need to change it up. And just like a few days before my show, somebody put my 1994 show up on, on the internet, and it's Linda, Naomi, and Krista McMenemy walking, and they really put some personality into their walks. And I kind of miss that, that we don't, we don't let the models express themselves mm -hmm. that way anymore. And so I think that you could see that on my runway, that even some of the models that maybe it was their first or sec second time doing fashion shows, they would see like Gigi and Bella and they'd get excited and they'd start twirling. And you know, it was just, it was just kind of a, a, a good energy, I think. I loved it. I loved your new collection. Oh, thank you. I, that's like one of my favorites, those particular sort of group of designers, mm -hmm. the Donald Brooks sort of Oh, yeah. Love um, them. And it, Have you seen the exhibit? I'm sorry. At, the at the, I That one or the Museum of the City of New York? I actually haven't seen the new one at the Oh, museum. yeah, because that's all yeah. at that period, mm -hmm. too. So Phyllis just brought me the book yesterday, and I, I can't wait Phyllis. to go see it. Yeah. yeah, I need to go up there and see it. 
the, the show that you just had in London was arranged by sort of archetypes from your sort mm-hmm. of themes. Yeah. How, were you a, as aware of those themes? Not really. No, that, that was the interesting thing. Dennis is the one who conceptualized that. And, you know, Thomas has been with me since maybe the first show. Yeah, I think. And it was kind of so exciting for us to see those clothes again because you know maybe we've seen pictures but like they've just been in the archives mm-hmm. and we haven't really like gone back and revisited and I, I know when Thomas was he, he went ahead and spent like a week ahead to set up the exhibition and he called me at one point and he said and when I walked in the room I started crying it's just like it's so emotional wait till you come here you know and it was really true it's like you you're so busy trying to look ahead, anticipate what's going on ahead, plan for that, that you kind of almost never have time to go back and, mm-hmm. and revisit, unless somebody asks you about yeah. it. I thought it was a beautiful show and really... Oh, thank you. It was really exciting to see it all. Because, I, I mean, I grew up seeing those shows, mm-hmm. so it was really exciting <laughs> to see it all together. I don't remember, the, were there any pieces from earlier, before 91? No, no? we didn't include any of those, okay. yeah. As, like, as you've grown such a huge business I mean are you still a complete owner yeah yeah, yeah. and I think the the fact that I had the Japanese license mm-hmm. gave me that freedom to stay independent and the the cosmetic and fragrance licenses that's so rare yeah and it's I mean especially having you know been a historian and done a lot of work researching designers it's it's so hard to first of all keep their keep their business going mm-hmm. and keep their name keep their name <laughs> yeah and like Theo you know, she went bankrupt Ozzy went bankrupt the same week mm-hmm. they so many of them over the years they go bankrupt or they have to give up so much of their control yeah. but that that's that's why it was <clears throat> such a godsend to have that person at Isatan mm-hmm. love my collection so much that he gave me that power base and then the fragrance and the cosmetics helped and then of course I did a lot of freelance especially mm-hmm. early on and you know a lot of my collaborations are kind of like an extension of that you know you have to do what you have to do but you know main main thing is like I need to support this so yeah. how much of your work is done out of this yeah so we do all the samples here mm-hmm. so that's what they're doing a duplicate samples and uh, we cut everything and then the pattern making is all here so it's really done the old-fashioned way mm-hmm. no tech packs being sent somewhere and where is production done? Um, in the neighborhood. Oh, wonderful. So that's why I'm, I, st- I want to stay in this neighborhood. So next month we're moving um, to 38th Street because mm-hmm. this rent is getting too high. So that's the other thing that's going on is the fact that economics are making it very, very difficult. And, you know, we're losing our whole kind of infrastructure in this area. You know, there used to be so many suppliers for zippers and buttons and trims and... It's little by little, people are just going out of business. They can't support themselves anymore. So it's a, sc- it's a scary time for this industry. There's nothing that's helping at this point. And the landlords can make more money with hotels and restaurants, and, and that's what they're doing. You know, they're kind of pushing people out to, to do that, or uh, tech companies. And they've been talking about moving the whole garment center to Brooklyn. Yeah, but that'll kill the whole industry. Because, I mean, so many workers live in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Like, for them to travel all the way to Sunset Park, you're going to lose a a big percentage of those workers. You know, plus a lot of the workers are older, especially like pattern makers. There's not 
it's not something where you're getting younger pattern makers because they're all into the high tech stuff, you know, doing tech packs and being a technical designer and so it's it's a different time. So I, I don't know, it's it's a uh, challenging at this point. Do you design your own textiles? We do. We work with different artwork people. Mm -hmm. Like some of them are drawn, some of them are vintage swatches or a combination of both. And we usually like manipulate them to make them our mm -hmm. own. Almost every pattern on the line is our our own. Um, you know, with the exception of like the Jack Hart is not. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't develop that one. A, a good friend of mine, her her fabric company did it, and I just fell in love with it. So. But in many cases, we do our own. Yeah, I was getting close to a couple of them, and they're really great. A lot of detail in them. It's very original. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Throughout your career, it seems like you've been about making affordable, more affordable mm -hmm. clothes. And how have you been able to maintain that? Yeah, that's a good question. It's been what I believe in, but it hasn't been easy because when I first started, stores had no idea where to put me mm -hmm. because I couldn't hang next to Bill Blass in their designer department, but it wasn't like junior either. So eventually Contemporary came along and Barney's Co-op became like a really big supporter and that price point and that, that kind of like selection made, made a lot of sense. But meanwhile, in through the years, Contemporary got almost like what junior used mm -hmm. to be. So. That, that kind of disappeared. So that's been my biggest challenge is stores don't know what to do with me because the prices are not, you know, the dresses aren't $1,000. They're, you know, a couple hundred up to maybe the top is 700. But it's what I always believed in, what I think I'm good at. I mean, I'm not so in love with, you know, like beautiful cashmere. I mean, I, it's nice, but that's, I think I excel at really taking a fabric and make, making it look more valuable, more expensive mm -hmm. than it really is. So it's been good and bad. And now I'm trying to make it a little more sophisticated because I think as I'm growing older, I'm liking more sophisticated. And then I get the resistance of like the prices. So it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. it's, a hard, it's a hard balance, especially in today's market. It's, you know, business is not good for people. So. Yeah, I mean, so much of, at least my friends who are designers are having trouble because people aren't shopping in department yeah. stores the way they There's used no stores to. anymore. Yeah. Where, when I first started, the most exciting thing about the show was who came backstage after and what they asked you for. Because mm -hmm. that's where they would get the promise of they get the whole first 10 looks exclusive. You know, it's like, and or they want to buy the outfits that Naomi wore. You know, like, like it was, it's just really funny what people would say to you. And you'd have to try to remember that because that was your, your word right, right there. And sometimes it was really hard because somebody else was talking on this side, so. But you don't have that power anymore from those stores. Like, you don't have that fashion director that has a whole vision that this is what he wants because he wants it for the windows and he's going to do a whole push for this style. and or a whole story on pink or, you know, it, you don't have that person anymore that has that power, which is really unfortunate. And I think that's what's lacking with the stores. They all became such big businesses, you know, like it, there's no more merchandiser, mm -hmm. like there's no more merchant like uh, Marvin Traub or people that 
really understood what the customer wanted. Now it's business school people. And I think that that's part of what's wrong with what's going on in fashion. It's all business school. There's no passion there for the merchandise. It's all the numbers. And I think it doesn't work. I think, you know, when's the last time you went into a store and just like, oh, I just love this. You know, it's it's hard. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's just like, oh my God, they have the same thing that so-and-so has. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of, how much more of this can I look at? You know, it's just, it's, so I think, you know, I, I think that that's what needs to happen is that it has to kind of go back to that merchant. But it's so hard in this world now. It's, you know, everything is owned by banks, owned by a bigger corporation. And it goes all the way down the line, textiles, everything. So it's, it's hard. Have you been doing a lot of business online or trying to shift that way or trying to Yeah, find um, other we just re we revived our online website. And what sells the most online are cosmetics mm -hmm. and fragrance. And it's interesting how many people from out of big cities are buying it, you know, and, and but the clothing hasn't caught on as, as well yet, I think, because it's just a harder thing to sell. But especially if you've tried the lipstick or you're curious about the fragrance, it's really easy just to do it on your computer. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I, I, I kind of do the same thing. Like I shop more online than going to the stores now because, firstly, you don't have that same experience when you go to a store. You can't get anybody to help you when you go to the store. Or when they do, it's such a bad experience that you kind of never want to go back. You know, it's... It's all of those things that are happening, which is so sad. I mean, you know, I used to have like salespeople that call you every time. Oh, yeah. Anna, there's a new shipment, and you know, you hardly get that anymore. Oh, it used to be such a treat to go yeah. to. Yeah. I grew up in London, so it'd be such a treat to go to Selfridges mm -hmm. or Harrods or Harvey Nicks, and then come to New York, and yeah. my mother and I would hit everywhere, uh -huh. you know. And uh -huh. It's so different now because when I do try and go into yeah. Saks or something. It's horrible. Like, I, I had the worst experience last time I went to Saks. And I went in the evening, mm -hmm. and I swear I was the only person in the store. And so when I finally did find a salesperson, she was so insulting that I wanted to write a letter to them. You know, it's just horrible. You know, she didn't want to do her job. She was too busy, like, mm -hmm. you know, texting somebody. It was so bad. So sad. Do you think it's going to be possible to shift this? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, okay, John Darian, his store. You go in there and you dream and you just, you're so excited and you want everything. And so I told him this weekend when I saw him, it's like, thank God for you because you make people happy. You have a store that, you know, I know when I walk in, it's just like, I don't know what to buy first. And like, you know, you go crazy and you have to like, wait, 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 calm down. Like, you don't need another plate. You don't need another <laughs> blanket. You know, it's just, but they're so, so beautifully presented and selected. And you want that. So, I mean, there's somebody that's doing it right. So, yeah, I think it's possible. But he's, again, I think been very fortunate to have hit the power in his own hands. And I think he's been very smart, and he does collaborations. I mean, at least that's my per yeah. perception of what he does, you know. So it seems like he has complete control. And I think that's, that's where, once 
you get that business partner that, you know, like, no, 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 bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, you know, it's not about that. You can see the passion that he has for what he buys and puts in his store. When he had all the stiff animals, mm -hmm. it's like, yes, you want that giant zebra, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's so great. I think shopping and fashion is it's aspirational. It's like the yearning for these things. If you have these things, what your life will be like. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's totally lacking if you're just looking at the bottom line. Mm -hmm. um, but you lose the fantasy aspect yeah. of it. It's so true. And I think that's what happened. But I think it happened in everything. You know, sports, music business, movie business. It's just... And I blame it on business school. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, in the old days, people didn't go to business school. I mean, they went to, very specific people went to business yeah, school. Yeah, but not in the, in the arts mm -hmm. like this. I think that, I don't know, it's, but that's, that's how it is now. So, you, you know, you can't fight it. You just have to try to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But I think it really had a repercussion. So what, what is inspiring you right now? You know, I, it's, it's like every day there's something, you know, and, and um, when I saw Phyllis's book yesterday and the fact that she has the, some dresses from the black and white ball. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's got the Penelope tree outfit from, from the black and white ball. Or, like, I can't wait to see uh, Jeffrey's Norman Norell exhibit. And, again, I knew nothing about him. I went to that talk. It was fascinating. And the fact that what his bread and butter was were those sequence dresses, that he produced them every season, and that he would have pre-orders for them, that that's what women wanted from him. And they were... I think he said $1,600, which was like $16,000 at, you know, back mm -hmm. in that, in that day. And that some women said that they wore theirs for 20 years, that they were all, you know, they were all hand sequenced and they just, nothing looked better, like clue, like that, that mm -hmm. dress and clue. So I think as long as there's those sort of things going on. It's exciting. You know, I, there's a bunch of movies I want to catch up with I haven't seen yet. Lady Bird, mm -hmm. like, I, like I, it, it sounds so interesting, but I haven't had a chance to go see it. So those are the things that can spark another idea, another collection. And that's, that's always the thing. I never know where it's going to come from. And, um, you know, I have to start now because it takes so much time to develop all the fabrics and everything. So... I'm just hoping that in these next couple of weeks there's something that like, kind of gives me an idea. Do you devote a lot of time to doing research or do you just... Oh yeah, that's my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can kind of see it in my office. I just have piles and piles and piles of things and books and clippings and you know, just, you need that you know, just to like have that reference. I don't want to take up any more time. Please. Oh, well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so for the much. interesting questions. Thank you so much for sitting down with oh, me. Oh, sure. Of course. Of course. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Anasui. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with artists, models, and fashion and textile designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week.